With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour, episode number 39, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. Episode number 39, we're nearly middle-aged. Yeah, we're going to have a midlife crisis <laughs> and start buying really like cool leather jackets and sticking back our hair. Going to buy yourself a Porsche, yeah. <laughs> if only. Yeah. It feels like five minutes ago, we're doing like our 10th episode, doesn't it? It's crazy. This year's shot by and it is our last show in September. That yeah. means, of course... Coming up next weekend. Oh, Play Expo. Woo. Yeah. So uh, if you're going to be coming along, we'll be there. Um, Sunday we're going to be there, aren't we? Yeah, because we're working on the Saturday, but Sunday we're going to have a couple of baits with us and stuff. It's going to be great going down. And so hopefully we'll see all you listeners. Absolutely. So if you're coming along, Play Expo in Manchester. We're going to be there next Sunday at the time we're recording this, 9th of October, isn't it? Yep. We're going to be down there. And tickets are still available, actually. We'll stick a link in our show notes at theretrohour.com. If you want to come along and see us in there, Man- Manchester. We'll be mad for it, Yeah, kid. Manchester, mate. <laughs> We'll leave the accent at home. We'll get beaten up walking through Manchester totally, doing yeah. that. Now, uh, thank you so much for your uh, donations this week as well. Um, we do have a little tip jar on the front page of our website at theretrohour.com. Of course, anything you do leave goes into the running of the show. I've got to say a massive thank you this week to Jacob Summer and our good friend Marvin Drugsma, who've both made very generous donations. Thank you so much for your support, guys. And do remember, it is on the front page of theretrohour.com. Our little tip jar there and PayPal link. Anything you donate goes into the running of the show. Let's continue and also bring you more of the biggest guests every week and i do not use that word lightly when it comes to this week's special guest no and this guy you know he's been out of this world he's gone to space he's like (laughs) such a big guest it's unbelievable it's lord british i think it's fair to say this is the first guest who's had the prefix lord on his name (laughs) we've had on the show (laughs) totally and he owns a manor and um he basically did Ultima Online, which mm-hmm. was one of the first massive MMOs, and he got assassinated and killed on it. In his own game. Yeah. <laughs> and he also coined the phrase Avatar. And James Cameron didn't pay him any royalties to use that <laughs> no, in the movie either. not at all. So Lord British, a.k.a. Richard Garriott, he's also the founder of Origin Systems. With his, Origin uh, Systems, his yeah. This, this guy is just insanely big in the world of gaming. Mm-hmm. He's probably one of our biggest guests, I'd say. He's also, I mean, he fell in love with the Apple II you know, back in like the late 70s and early 80s. And also, he's going to talk about how the Apple II actually, you know, really crippled his company back in the day, nearly, you know, made them run out of money because he loved the machine that much, he stuck with it a bit too long. So we'll find out all about that. Sounding (laughs) similar. I think we all know a few people that are obsessed with certain machines like that, don't we? Yeah. So uh, we're going to get Lord British on the Retro Hour. This is such a good interview, guys. Got to hang around for this one. He's going to be on in around 20 minutes from now. Now let's get into this week's news stories, starting with a bit of Spectrum news. Yes, so as we know, there are many Spectrum projects going on at I the can't moment. Keep up. <laughs> you can't keep up, no. And the Vega Plus is one that we were talking about previously. Well, this is a, another project which is called the ZX Spectrum Next. Okay, I do remember we did talked about it when it was just kind of first talked about, but they've actually confirmed the specs for it now, is that yeah. correct? Yeah, and this was that very slick looking keyboard. Shiny. Shiny, yeah, <laughs> with nice keys. Now, the specs of this are really interesting because it's something that the Spectrum Vega hasn't done. Mm-hmm. And it's basically the firmware is a lot more powerful, so it allows them to copy clones which came out such as the radastan <laughs> okay timex color uh timex high resolution and the sam coupe got it so these are all these got different variants of like the spectrum hardware that were released by different companies around the world yeah because okay. i even remember um on ebay there was these strange russian soviet spectrum really that came out at some point with you know little russian writing on them and letters it's, wow yeah and uh they're even saying that this is capable of having an external bus board with an accelerator and you'll be able to add HDMI, you know, do crazy upgrades to it. That's cool because the Spectrum is like, you know, you think back in the day, because they were so cheap and, you know, pretty much you saved up a few weeks' pocket money and you could afford a Spectrum back in the day or your yeah. mum and dad would get you one for your birthday or Christmas. And there were really, you know, a lot of kids in Britain 
not only learn coding and stuff, but also like hardware hacking and adding expansions. And I remember you get like, you know, at school, we'd, we'd like solder things and people would do like little like, you know, Morse code like transmitters and stuff that plug in the spectrum. And Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. They had audio stuff, the spectrum as well, and yeah, that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> You've talked about that, you know, the other week, you talked about that um, Ethernet adapter that people are getting them online and doing online gaming and stuff. Yeah, yeah, them. Spectranet. It's, yeah. It's, it's just crazy. And I love the fact that now you've got one which you can add all these modern crazy things in like hdmi mm-hmm. and, you know the well, tape it, loading will be insanely fast and all of that this is based on fpga then so they can basically reprogram it like on the fly yeah i imagine yeah. so that's really good and it looks great as well i mean gone are the days of those little fiddly rubber keys <laughs> yeah i know these keys look very nice unless they are going to put a rubber layer over it oh, please, please don't <laughs> so uh, when's this due out it can't be far away now well they say uh, launch soon so okay. we'll have to see Maybe Santa will be bringing you one down the chimney. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, it looks really cool, though. So we'll pop all the information in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, Sega have been uh, on the hunt for new IPs recently and have bought one that's quite interesting. Sega have actually um, acquired Technosoft's IP. Technosoft? I'm not really aware of them. Uh, what, what software did they do? Well, I'm looking through the list here, and these are um, and they're a Japanese company. And I'll be honest, I've not heard of most of them. But the one that did catch my attention is Thunder Force. Ah, okay. Now that was, you know, if you're talking the old old school Sega machines, those kind of space shooters or shmups, as they're known <laughs> in America. You know, the old Sega machines did them really well, didn't they? And yeah, yeah, they were great for that. And Thunder Force was a really good one from it, what I remember. Absolutely. And it, I think the reason they've got this is, you know, Sega have been doing these kind of 3D compilations recently. Ah, yeah. Um, and they're going to be putting um, Thunder Force 4 into the uh, the newer version of that, which is a Sega 3D Archives Volume 3, I think it's going to be. So, um, unfortunately, again, we've talked about this in the past. It's looking like it'll probably only be a Japanese release. Yeah. For the so. time being. But, you know, it'd be cool if the import market kind of gets a few of those in, or, or if Sega do eventually say, look, let's release these to the rest of the world. Maybe they're using Japan as like a test ground, and then hopefully... <laughs> Very optimistic there, Ravi. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, you know, it is kind of... You look at, like, Dreamcast homebrew games, and I know there's been a lot of those come out recently. I was watching, there's a YouTuber called, you know, Adam Korolek. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and he's like, he's Mr. Dreamcast on, on his channel. And he did a video recently because, obviously, 9th of September is at the Dreamcast birthday in North America. You know, nine nine ninety nine is when yeah, it came out. Yeah. And he did a video this year, and apparently um, there's been more Dreamcast games released in 2016 than there has been since, like, 2003. <laughs> That's <laughs> so, crazy. Like, 10 or 11 this year or something. And on that note, when he came to Nottingham as well, he got into a fight at the game station or something. <laughs> CX, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, CX. You need to watch the video about that. We'll link that. It's hilarious. Yeah, if you haven't checked Adam's channel out, he actually came to like the city we live in and like we're both working and couldn't meet up with the guy. But it's uh, he's one of my favourite YouTubers for Dreamcast stuff. But the reason I mentioned that on the back of this story is there's kind of a bit of a, you know, all the homebrew games that come out for the Dreamcast, like 99% of them are shoot 'em up games these yeah, days. Yeah, totally. But it's just, you know, they feel really at home on the Sega platforms. So... I think it's really good news that, you know, Sega have uh, acquired that and it would be nice to see some a bit more of a widespread release for it, wouldn't it, on like, you know, virtual arcades and that kind of thing. Too. And I think with the Dreamcast as well, I think Sega kind of just said, yeah, we'll let anyone develop on it. You know, they kind of gave up on the uh, <laughs> licensing there. So. That's absolutely right. I mean, you know, I've often read that, that Sega, you know, people tr- kind of tested the water with it around like 2004 or five, and like, oh, Sega haven't sued us, right? We'll just put out more games. And, you know, it's cool of Sega just to allow people to do that and not interfere with it, unlike, you know, Certain other companies of a similar age that we know of that will probably uh, get involved somehow with that lawyers. Now, I thought this next story was quite interesting. Um, Have you ever wondered where your old recycled e-waste goes? I've always wondered, but some guys have actually tracked it down and found out where they go. So this uh, California-based group were just wondering, like, oh, is this... All these computers, are they kind of looked after well? Are they recycled responsibly? And they put GPS trackers in 205 printers and LCD monitors, and then they dropped them off at recycling centers all over the US. Right. So they were wondering, where are they gone? Now, 40% of these ended up in junkyards in rural Hong Kong in China. They're just transporting these pretty much from junkyards in America to China. Well, recycling centres in America, and then they're just dumping them in piles in rural China. That's awful. So just (laughs) big piles of complete waste, old monitors, old printers, all this stuff. It's actually really bad. Mm. And a lot of these kind of items are made, and, you know, we get a lot of disposable items as well, and we throw tech out a hell of a lot. Mm -hmm. And uh, it all just goes to developing countries, or it goes to, you know, small rural places and... 
people burn it and get, <laughs> you know, metals out of it and get bad diseases. And we never kind of think about where all this stuff goes once we've used it. Because you'd think, you know, I've dropped like, you know, all monitors and stuff off at recycling centres. And you always assume that, you know, maybe they're going to send that to like, you know, I don't know, an internet cafe in like a third world country or they're going to, you know, strip it down for the metals and make new stuff out of it. Yeah. The fact that they're just dumping it though in like... Well, the company actually holds an e-Stewart's um, certification, which means that, you know, they're supposed to be responsible recycling people. Yeah. And they said they were very, very sorry, apparently. <laughs> oh, I bet they are, now they're in court. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what's really annoying as well? I mean, I've, uh, you know, I know there are guys on YouTube. Have you ever watched, like, they do dumpster diving kind of videos and yeah. stuff like that? And uh, I've seen a few guys on there who go to, like, their local junkyards and stuff to drop, you know, stuff off. But they might see something they really want. There's one guy who found, like, a, a Powermat G5. Yeah. And he tried to take it. They're like, oh, no, you can't take it. You can't oh, take totally. It. Like, I went to the dump yard to just throw some old TVs away. Mm-hmm. And I went in and they had, like, you know nice nice old crts and everything and it was like a whole room of them like and yeah. i was like can i take them no mate they're, they're already designated trash and, yeah <laughs> you know, they're smashing these things up with a hammer oh god it's just really bad yeah so uh hopefully now that they've been uh busted for that you know maybe that situation will improve yeah um, maybe they'll actually start recycling them <laughs> <laughs> you know like the a, name would suggest yeah chucking them in the countryside <laughs> Now, we mentioned the Spectrum before, and I think, you know, the amount of Spectrum clones and new versions that have been made, the only thing that's really comparable to that would be the NES. Yeah, <laughs> there is yeah. yet another NES hardware on the market. Another one? Oh, my God. What, what's this one do, then? <laughs> so this is called uh, Retro USB are the company behind it, and this is called the AVS. It kind of looks a bit like it could have been made in, like, 1985. It's even yellowed. Like they, they've pre-yellowed it to add that retro feel. <laughs> Is that going a bit too authentic there, maybe? <laughs> you want to retro-bright it looking at it, don't you? Yeah, someone's going to pick that up and think, <laughs> I found the rare beauty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Another rare NES prototype that yeah. never released. But um, this thing, I mean, it does look... Design-wise, it's a bit different to um, an old-school NES, but it looks like the plastic's very similar, and it kind of looks like it could have been made by Nintendo in that era. Even the buttons are really similar, and it's got the old-school controller ports on there too. But again, this is another FPGA-based system. Wow, there's so many coming out at the moment. FPGA is also... I mean, obviously, we talked about the other um, Nintendo system a couple of weeks ago, the one that was um, like $500, the one by Analog NT, wasn't it? This yeah. one is a lot cheaper, though, and apparently um, it even offers a lot more performance and features in that system as well, including... Um, they've kind of got some really good upscaling hardware in here as well, and this outputs on HDMI, and it means that essentially your games, it'll sharpen them up, put them out in 720p. They reckon they've done tests here, and the games look even better running on this hardware than they do on the Wii U, on the virtual um, arcade on there. Jesus. Well, I've seen that it's got two slots in there. So does it do NES and SNES games? Then? I think it's for different regions. They've got ah, the uh, different okay. slots in there as well. So, I mean, it, you know, again, it's FPGA, so that means it's not emulation. They basically, you know, rewire the, the chip to be like, you know, kind of a NES on a chip, if you yeah, like. Yeah, but you're plugging in the game and it's actually playing through this system yeah. and outputting in beautiful... HD. And it's even got stuff like, you know, scanline emulation in there as well for uh, us CRT freaks, you know. Oh, probably as near as you're going to get. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool though, and it? it? seems to be all the original controllers yeah. um, plug in on the ports as well. And your original yeah. carts and stuff as well. So, uh, you know, apparently it's um, it's not like using a Raspberry Pi or something like that. It's not emulation. This is actually, you know, probably as near as you're going to get to, uh, you know, even more so than Nintendo's mini thing they're bringing out. This is a bit more true to the original hardware. And if they get the price well, then this will probably be more successful than that analog nt thing that we saw which yeah, is a which, bit expensive yeah, what was that five hundred dollars we saw? Yeah. Well, yeah so uh we'll keep an eye on that story when that's out we'll let you know in the show notes at the retrohour.com now this story was pretty cool apparently parents in britain are quite keen for their kids to be um computer games designers well this is this is kind of a really not scientific survey because it was held by cartoon network right. <laughs> but, um they're basically saying that now in Britain, uh, a lot of kids are learning coding. Children are learning coding aged five, and they're being asked at their school what's their favourite subject, and a lot of them are saying coding. Wow. So this whole new generation is coming up, and now parents are realising that the skill sets in these children are really important, and they can actually increase imagination and creativity and stuff. So they, they were surveyed, and they were asked, you know, what would you like your child to become a lawyer, an accountant, or, you know, a, a, a regarded, well, solid, well earning career? And it came near the bottom of the parents' list. What whereas uh, lawyers, accountants, oh, right. okay. yeah, whereas games designer came near the top. So 
I think they got that right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's awesome. And I mean, you know, we have talked about this on the show before that, you know, stuff like, you know, the BBC Micro Project, the new one and the Raspberry Pi and, you know, these really cheap systems that are designed to get kids into coding again because it was off the national curriculum for a long time. Now it's back on. Well, you would have asked a kid in the early 90s or like, say, 94 or mm-hmm. 95 or something and you would have said, oh, what's your favourite subject at school? And I guarantee it wouldn't have been coding. Well, but like, nowadays, it is. And that's great. It, and the Acorn days, it would have been as well. Yeah, in the 80s, yeah. You know, it was like Logo and BBC Basic and stuff like that. But I think it got took off the national curriculum around the late 90s, early 2000s. Definitely. And we only went on again the last couple of years, didn't it? So you obviously had that big gap of, like, you know, kids that went to school in the 2000s that didn't learn it. But The, the fact, fact that, you know, that five-year-olds are doing yeah. it and that's becoming a, a standard subject that they all like, I think that's amazing. Which leads us quite nicely into this next story. A kid becomes certified Microsoft tech, age seven. Age <laughs> seven, yes. So Microsoft seem to be really into these kind of kids that are doing aspiring stuff at the moment. Oh, we talked and about the kid the other week who bought a mainframe and got a job at Microsoft, didn't we? Yeah, totally. And uh, this kid, Hamza, mm-hmm. he's, uh, he wants to be Bill Gates, apparently. Right. That's what he said. So uh, he's not, aiming... Not a bad goal. Yeah, <laughs> aiming high. And he's actually a Microsoft certified technician now, age seven. Wow. And uh, that's a Microsoft Office specialist uh, for Office XL 2013 at the moment. I've seen a little interview with him and he's like, you know, he can hardly string a sentence together, but he's saying, you know, I can code web apps. Yeah. I could do console <laughs> apps. I could, <laughs> I'm just like blown away. You could do more than I could do. He could do develop a basic shopping cart and all of this stuff online. He probably thinks in binary, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah. We, we, we wouldn't understand. <laughs> totally. And, and he's a British kid as well from Birmingham, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. He's on another level. Yeah. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's so cool, though. I feel really thick when I read stories like this. Yeah, I, I love these little stories because it's all showing, you know, we're the retro hour, but... yeah. There's going to be a retro eye in the future with these guys running it. Yeah, It'll probably are. be a lot cooler. <laughs> when I was seven working for Microsoft. Yeah, that's it, yeah. <laughs> so any of these stories we mentioned in today's show will, of course, go in the show notes at theretrohour.com. And we'll see you next weekend then if you're going to be there. Play Expo in Manchester. Oh, it's going to be great. Oh, what a day that's going to be. If you haven't been before, seriously, how much fun did we have last year? Oh, loads. It's just rooms full of arcades, wicked music. There's like... Retro corner, there's some crazy cosplayers there. Oh, it's good fun. Look out for Ravi hanging around near Amiga kit if they're there trying to skank CD32 games off them. Yeah, <laughs> spilling beer all over their X1000s. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if you're going to be there next weekend, we'll see you there. We're going to be there on the Sunday. Uh, do come over and say hi if you spot us around or, you know, drop us a tweet or something like that if you want to find us. We'll be around all day on the Sunday. Thank you for checking out episode number 39. We'll be back again next Friday for the big 4 0. Yep, and the announcement of the winners of the competition. Yes, of course, we've had this competition running for the uh, Commodore 64 Visual Compendium books. Um, Well done if you've entered. We'll uh, find out who's won that on next week's show, and we'll be in touch and get those books in the post. And now then, over to the main event for the next 45 minutes or so on the Retro Hour, Lord British. Richard Garriott. And we'll see you next Friday. Ciao. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and let's welcome this week's special guest, Richard Garrier, aka Lord British. Welcome to the show. Absolutely, uh, thrilled to be a part of the Retro Hour. You know, I'm a, a bit of a retro guy myself. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to getting some stories. First of all, though, um, we've got to ask, where did the name Lord British come from? Ah, well, uh, I'm not sure if you've heard this before. In fact, based on that question, but. Uh, I was actually born in Cambridge, England, so I am a passport-carrying Brit. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, I grew up in Houston, Texas, uh, so obviously I don't have a British accent. But interestingly, I don't have much of a Texas accent either, based upon the little community where I grew up next to NASA. And some of the kids in my sophomore year of high school, uh, when they said hi to me and I answered in my voice, hello, they thought my hello sounded foreign, and so uh, they they nicknamed me British, and that nickname was given to me in the same you know day that I began to play the game Dungeons and Dragons, and we all used the nicknames that had just been given to each of us by the the kids here at the school, and so uh, uh, the name kind of stuck through my D and D campaigning, and ultimately as I started writing games, Lord British uh, became a character in the game, and and uh, and the pen name that I used on the games. Before I really was ever publishing them, that was really just something I was doing for fun for me and my friends. 
But my first uh, publisher, when they kind of saw these uh, homebrew games that I was making, uh, thought that story that I just told you was kind of clever. And so I uh, took Richard Garriott off the box and left Lord British on the box. It's a pretty cool name. I like it. <laughs> and uh, I was wondering, you were into Dungeons and Dragons in the early days. Um, would you have like a club or a group of guys that you'd do it with? Absolutely. You know, in fact, uh, it was during one summer that I kind of learned to play it when I was at sort of a, a nerd camp for computer gaming and math, uh, which is where I got that nickname. But then as soon as I went back to my home and my home high school, I started a campaign which uh, grew and ran for three years uh, that, that not only included you know, me and my group of you know, five or ten people every Friday and Saturday night at my house, but we, it grew so large, the group grew so large, we had games going in the living room, in the family room, in the dining room. We kicked my mother out of her art studio. She had to build a whole new art studio. Uh, we used to have a, a ping pong table in the garage, which got converted to another gaming table. So uh, we would have you know, five or ten games going uh, on you know, different nights. Uh, on Fridays and Saturdays, and it was sort of the happening in my neighborhood uh, for uh, at least three years until I went off to college. Well, what was it that got you interested in like fantasy and games originally then when you were like really young? Well, so in addition to what I just told you, the nickname Lord British, that was also the same year I was given my first copies of Lord of the Rings. So uh, all these things intersected, uh, you know, sort of at the same time. And, and within that year, I'd sort of found my my uh, life's uh, passion all, all, all at the same moment. And th this was right at the emergence of, of computer games. So there, in fact, this was before personal computers. The Apple II computer didn't even exist yet. So I, I actually wrote my first handful of games on a teletype, you know, a, a big clunky you know, electronic typewriter uh, that read spools of paper tape for its uh, memory. Uh, and so it was very, very, very kind of brutal, uh, brute force uh, machine. Uh, but it's really how I got my, my foundation. Well, I know that you did the, uh, you know, the early D&D &D, um, series on a teletype. How, how exactly did you code those then? What was it, what was it written in? It was written in BASIC. Mm -hmm. And uh, this, the same high school that I returned to after that summer camp, um, you know, they had two teletypes in the school only one of which had a modem to attach to a, this off-site computer. And the faculty in the school didn't use it for anything. I mean, it was not used in any class. No one, no faculty knew how to turn it on, much less uh, utilize it in any way. Uh, but since I had had a brief exposure at that summer camp, uh, you know, I came back and said, you know, hey, I'm very interested in this machine. Why don't you, you let me use it? And while I was a BC student throughout my scholastic career, I was a top competitor in things like science fairs. And so the, the, the faculty knew that if I was interested in something, I could do it at a, a very high level. And so they actually let me have that computer in a classroom by myself for th the remaining three years I had of school uh, with uh, uh, no teacher, no curriculum. I just told them what I was going to work on. And at the end of that, they'd look at it and go, yep, you did it all right. Uh, here's a nice, here's a letter of grade for you. And what I did for three years was write games. And so the DND, to be separated from D ampersand D, which is a uh, trademark still of TSR. Uh, and of course, I wasn't publishing these, so it wouldn't have really mattered. But those DND games uh, were, uh, I wrote 28 of them. The way I would get inspiration is by reading some of the early computer gaming uh, magazines where they would often publish a one, you know, that, that somewhere in the back of the magazine, they published a single page of, hey, here's a little subroutine to do blank. And you would type it in on whatever computer you had, but of course it would never work. One, because it was probably written for a computer other than the one you're now sitting in front of. B, there were probably typos in it uh, being printed or typos in your transcription. Uh, but for whatever reasons, you would end up having to debug it. And by debugging it, therefore I meant learning it. Uh, and then you begin to string together subroutines that you've inherited from a variety of sources to as you until you slowly master the the language. So I have never I've never had a teacher, uh, never really had uh, many uh, mentors, you might say, along the way. Uh, completely self-taught in uh, everything I've done. 
That's uh, pretty amazing because it sounds like they let you have free reign on the subject. So kind of like university, but at a school level. <laughs> it's really interesting. Yeah, that's true. You know, and I, in fact, even as I reflect on it, uh, you know, it was a pr- pretty good foresight on the part of the school uh, to make that realization. Well, at that time, you must have been one of the first ever people to be doing computer role playing games. There can't have been many others around then. Uh, no, in fact, I would argue there were none. <laughs> yeah, so I. Uh, uh, you know, the only games that I saw on a computer that predate me uh, was, uh, you know, there was a, a text-based Hump the Wumpus game. There was uh, a Zork uh, and a couple of other text uh, adventure games. And uh, somewhere about that same point in time, television a, a device to play Pong came out. But uh, but if, of role-playing games, I don't think there are published examples that uh, precede me doing my unpublished personal work. It's amazing because we've had quite a few guests that have actually talked about D&D and how it's influenced them to going into computer games. Uh, there's a really strong link with that. No, I think so. In fact, uh, you know, what's interesting also about trying to write a role-playing game on a computer is that in many ways we're still striving to simulate those earliest days of paper role-playing games. But what's interesting, at least in my mind, about it is that uh, I actually think that not only are we still failing to capture the magic of a well-run interactive story around a tabletop, uh, we get closer and closer every year, but we, we still aren't there. But I would also say that players of tabletop role-playing games have uh, lost some of the magic of those earliest days also. And so there's, there's something you know, that has been sort of lost and, and, and hasn't been recaptured. And here's my case for that. In 1977, which is uh, when, the, when Dungeons & Dragons was published, I believe, the early adopters uh, were a small group of interactive storytellers, I would, I would say. They weren't they weren't even gamers, quote-unquote, because they're, 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 this was the first of a new type of game. These weren't people who were already gaming. This brought a new kind of gamer into existence. And those earliest adopters were the universally good interactive storytellers from the start. And I remember that you know when I would sit down to play, I already was never paying any attention to the books or the rules or the manuals, other than for inspiration. I was sitting around a table and I was I was setting a scene and then based upon everybody's everyone's reaction if it was logical and reasonable and seemed like it probably ought to work then it generally worked and if it was silly or you know uh, illogical or clearly wouldn't have worked guess what it doesn't work and uh, and so the rolling of dice or the computing of numbers was very very distant uh, from the interactive storytelling that was going on around the table. And as our group expanded, the other people who were these early adopters were of that same ilk. The, the, the people who ran games, the people who became regular game masters, cycle after cycle, uh, were also these great interactive storytellers that if I sat in one of their games, I would learn a lot about their interactive story craft uh, and take it back into my own creations. But when I went off to college and came back a couple of years later to the same groups, the D&D had become so popular that you ran out of good storytellers. And so instead what people started doing is they started leaning on the rules. And they started saying like, well, you know, I opened the door and we bashed through and so we surprised the people on the inside and so we have initiative and I've rolled it's this kind of plus and maybe I'm two feet taller so I get some other kind of advancement or initiative or I'm on a chair and you're not or I'm on a stable surface and you're not. And you do these, and you argue about this calculation for 20 minutes, and then you finally say, "Okay, let's roll the dice." You roll some dice, and you go miss, and then you go, "Okay, let's start the calculation over." And you begin to say who has initiative, who doesn't. And to me, that is not interactive storytelling, and that is frankly not fun. But as the game, as role-playing games become more popular, they sort of devolved in my mind to that way. I know a lot of the uh, D&D crowd from like the, you know, the mid-70s, eventually when they got into like electronic systems, a lot of them went on to um, online multiplayer MUD games. Um, did you ever experience any of the, the early MUDs? You know, I, I had played some of them on like the AOL dial-up service stuff. But, you know, honestly, the early MUDs, especially the text MUDs, and even the earliest graphical MUDs, never really captured my attention. I would see some aspects of them that I thought was uh, fascinating, but I never really stuck to it because the 
part of me was also looking for things I thought we could create, and I was not convinced there was a market yet until until the internet came. The dial-up cost and you know market restriction was made it non-plausible to invest significant money behind to make a really quote good game unquote you know in my mind. Well, you mentioned your first microcomputer was uh, an Apple II, and uh, you know many people we've spoken to got their start in game programming on the Apple II. What was so special about that machine for you then? Well, what's interesting, you know, I, I think that had I started with a um, Commodore 64 or TRS-80 or something, you know, I might have had a similar um, experience. You know, and of course, I have used all of those machines, uh, but I did luck into the Apple II first. And and so whether it's because I have you know a confirmation bias of my original uh, machine or not, I do believe it is the best of the bunch. And what I found most useful about the Apple II which would have been similarly true for the Commodore and the TRS-80, is that you know when you have a machine that only has 16K to 64K of total memory and only about 16K of complete of all the ROM, all the machine knows how to do is uh, innately when you turn it on is, is in 16K. And the only physical things you can do outside of interact with the CPU is a handful of physical addresses that you know toggle the speaker position up or down uh, in binary. It's simple enough. It's it's complex enough to be able to do a lot of very interesting things, but it's simple enough that one person can literally know what every byte of memory does. And you, and you can learn it completely on your own. You can learn it by literally just putting the value zero at zero in memory and seeing what happens. <laughs> you know what I mean? So being a computer user in the 1970s, it must have been a really good game at that hardware level that's kind of restricted now that you were just talking about. Um, did that en- enable you to start developing games on the Apple II? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And in fact, um, uh, you know, I, you know I, I lament the work, frankly, my team has to do today to make a game. You know, the, the, the power that we have in the machines that we use today is so, so far beyond uh, what we could have, frankly, even imagined just 30 years ago. Uh, that it is, you know, awe-inspiring. Uh, it, it literally almost every day I sit down and look at the CPU, the the, the GPUs, the graphics hardware, and and I'm I'm mystified that you know how much number crunching they can do to render these scenes that we put together. On the other hand, the distance between you know our artist, you know, drawing a piece of uh, creating a piece of of art or an animating piece of art and dropping the game. This, the distance between those two points is is vast, and the amount of work, the, the layers of code between the front end of our game and then the engine that we happen to be using, in this case Unity, uh, then the code that has been written by the hardware uh, uh, folks to push polygons through their hardware, is that, that path is so complex that no no one of our employees can know any you know, can can master really more than one tiny slice. Of of what is necessary to be done to make a game, you know, back in my day, it was it was much easier to uh, make a trade off. If, if if for example, I had somebody, if I had a composer working for me, who might say, "Hey, I'd like you to store your samples in 44 kilohertz instead of 22 kilohertz," I would immediately turn to them and say, "Forget it, because 44 kilohertz takes twice as much memory, and you're already using more than half the memory of the machine. So you know, no way." And uh, those sorts of simple decisions that game designers and developers and producers have to make, when, when you're the person who knows how all the hardware works, you can make those trade-offs you know, accurately. Um, where I find the new younger generation that's getting in, while they have some new amazing new talents, uh, you know, they've, they've missed out on some of the roll-it-your-own uh, that helps you really uh, make good, uh, uh, ba- balanced, creative decisions. Well, I know with the Apple II, I mean, you mentioned the limited resources of the machine there. Did you ever have to come up with, like, creative solutions to kind of squeeze a bit more out of the machine? I know I've heard stories about you doing, like, multi-loaders to get different bits of the game into memory at different times. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's that's exactly one of them right there. We, we would do things like, you know, I mentioned that 16K, the, the ROM of the computer had 16K of code in it. You became intimately familiar with the code written by, you know, either Wozniak or Bill Gates uh, that might be stored in some of these places uh, to see if there were any subroutines in their code 
that you could either call the whole subroutine or jump into the middle of the subroutine and have it return at the end to do a function you needed so that you didn't have to write it in the memory you were using. Uh, and then one you were just referring to was, you know, basic uh, it was, it's not a sophisticated language. It was never meant to load and unload modules of code. You know, when you ran a basic program, the whole basic program is expected to be right there in memory with you. And with even Ultima 1, I used more than the full memory of the computers. Uh, the, 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 the basic code that I wanted to run would have taken you know, more than twice the total RAM of the 64K machine that existed. And so what I did is after I had a pretty stable main code base, I made sure that the, the end of the code was where I rendered each monster type. And so then what I did is I said, when you're on the first floor of a dungeon, these two monsters will be at the end of that basic file. And then when you go down to the second level of the dungeon, what I would do is I would cheat. I would basically copy from the drive the back half of a program while the original program was still running. And I would just clobber the back of the program by loading two more monsters sort of exactly at the right place to where the basic code would not have a hiccup in the binary file, uh, and then I'd have to move the end of file marker because uh, the amount of code necessary would be, the, 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 the lines of code would change to some degree when you move from one monster to another. But if you then, weeks or days later, made a change in the early part of the program, all those positions in memory moved uh, in a very hard to reconcile way. And so basically, anytime I fixed a bug after I started this, I had to kind of fix it multiple times through multiple resavings and reloadings of all these layers, make sure all the layers continued to work in the way that originally designed. And which was uh, this this overloading of basic is something again that I uh, never heard about or was taught in school. You just the deeper you understand the machine, the more you realize you can, you know, cheat the in the designer's intentions. And uh, and squeeze a little bit more out of it than uh, anybody else previously had thought. One of the games that you did on the Apple II, I mean, um, A Calabeth and the World of, World of Doom, that was pretty early title. Was that 1979 that one came out? Uh, I wrote it in 1979, right as I was going from high school to college, but it was released in 1980. So was that game ever intended for like uh, commercial audiences, or did you just kind of write it for like you and your friends? Oh, I just wrote it for me and my friends. It was never intended for commercial release. Uh, when I wrote it, dur during my last couple of years in high school, I had a summer job each year at a local computer store. Uh, the, it was a computer store called Computerland. And uh, in that store, we sold Apple II computers. We sold a, 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 a computer called a SOL, S-O-L. We, we sold Commodore 64s and VIC-20s uh, and a couple others. And I started working there, you know, before there were floppy disk drives. You know, there were tape machines only, and, and the floppy disk drive was a major advancement during the time I was working there. And we were sell when we were selling these computers, these computers were expensive. They were already, you know, if you time date this and you know, put the simplicity of the machine around it, these machines were about $3,000 a piece. And, you know, that was a, a lot more money then than it is now, and that would still be pretty expensive for a computer. And this $3,000 machine had virtually no software you could run on it. And and when we would go pitch people why they should put out $3,000 for an Apple II or a Commodore 64 or one of these others, the software that we had available to sell them on the store wall was things like a recipe card file or a really crummy word processor or a checkbook balancing piece of software. And you know you think about shelling out that kind of money for a pretty crummy way to keep recipes, and uh, you know, on, on a tape drive, and you know, that's a pretty hard sell. I mean, you're, you're able to work pretty hard to sell a computer to you know back at the time. And it was the owner of the computer store who I was uh, in my off time, kind of showing off the game in the back room to other employees and to the management. And he was looking over my shoulder, watching this game, and he went, "Richard, you know that game, Acalabeth." is way better than anything we've ever had for sale on the pegboard out in front of this store. He said, you know, you should publish that game. You know, you could, if you go put that thing in a package, uh, we can start selling them right here out of the store. And I went out and spent what I thought was an enormous amount of money, $200, my, basically my life savings, 
at a print shop in the same little strip center that we that the computer line store was in. Uh, put it in Ziploc bags with these basically mimeographed, there wasn't even Xeroxing at the time, it was a mimeographed uh, cover sheet, some hand staple stitched together tiny little manual that my mother helped me put together around the kitchen table. And I hand copied some discs on my Apple II. I, I actually made a couple of tape copies because it was right when the floppy disk was just coming out. Uh, but I made about a dozen floppy disk copies as well. And we hung them in the pegboard at the Computerland store. And they started selling out of that store, but almost immediately I got a call from a publisher in California. One of the very first ever game publishers was called California Pacific. And they had already been picked up. One of the few people writing code that I knew of and also really admired, a guy named Bill Budge. And so when they called me up and said, hey, there's plane tickets waiting for you at the airport. Why don't you come to California, sign a contract, and we'll start mailing you money for selling your game. You know, I was, of course, interested and they put it in a bigger Ziploc bag, uh, raised the price from the $20 I was selling it for, for to $35. My royalties per unit was about $5 per game, and they sold about 30,000 copies just in a few months. Wow. And if you do that math, 30,000 times $5, that's $150,000 I earned with about seven weeks of my after-school time in high school which was two or three times my father's salary as an astronaut. <laughs> so that sort of set the stage for why I remained in the computer gaming industry. That must have blown your dad's mind a little bit then, yeah? Well, yeah, well, it's kind of funny, <laughs> too, because, you know, everybody was pretty amazed. And so a couple of years later, when I was making the very tough decision to drop out of college to play games for a living, you know, the whole family was like, well, yeah, you, of course you have to. It makes, you know, it would make no sense to do anything else. But they also thought this can't last. There's no way you can continue this year after year after year. They said, in a couple of years, when you know when this runs its course, you can go back to school, finish your degree, and go get a real job. <laughs> it's just a fun. But, uh, obviously, that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> Have you still got any of those old um, tapes and discs then from, uh, from that time? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I still have the paper tapes that I wrote the D&D 1 on, and uh, I still have all the notebooks I wrote out 1 through 28 in. Uh, I still have the floppy disks numbered, the ones I started selling on the wall. I put little stickers in the corners with numbers on them. I have the ones that didn't sell, I still have those in, in, in hand. What do you think looking back on those early titles now? Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, now, of course, there's things like emulators and other methods by which you can see this. And in fact, the only one of my previous games that you were truly unable to see was the one I wrote on the teletype that was, uh, you know, obviously no one... That I know of has an operational teletype hooked up to an operational PDP-11. I bet there's someone um, out there with one. The, you never know. There might be. And <laughs> Some I'd guy like to hear in a garage. There is because I've still got the code and the paper tape. But what I did is I made a printout. Before I left that school, I'd made a printout of D&D number one. So what, for Shroud of the Avatar, the game we're working on now, we actually put up a challenge. And I, I published the code and I said, I'd love to, we're going to build a little teletype in this game little steampunk kind of teletype for a medieval game. And I'd love it if somebody will take this code and make it work in Unity uh, so I can drop it in this game. And that's what we did. And we gave out some prizes for the people who, who did the best conversions. And so now you can play D&D 1 inside of Shroud of the Avatar. That's amazing. I think I actually spotted a guy a few years ago at a computer show with a teletype. Uh, sitting in the corner. <laughs> operational <laughs> about. As, a piece of, as a piece of art. I think it was operational. Well, obviously, um, Ultima is the series that you're most known for. I mean, is it true that the original game, the, the First Age of Darkness, came out of a story that you wrote at high school? Is that correct? That's true. Yeah, in fact, uh, you know, I mentioned myself as a BC student. Well, the, 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 the truth is, in, in math and science, I, you know, would make mostly Bs and a rare A. And in anything like English or history... I'd make mostly C's and a rare D. So I, I was not a great student. And, but, but the worst of all was usually spelling and grammar and in my English class was my biggest challenge. And uh, one of the rare times I got an A in class, in my English class, was when I wrote the history of Lord British and the rise of the Dark Lord Mondain. Uh, and that is ultimately what became the story of Ultima One. Uh, that uh, was, and and I got, and it was, and it was a rare chance I got an A. So it was a, 
Uh, I, I have that uh, piece of paper too, or, or not papers, uh, the original documents that I uh, made in school. Have you scanned that in? Is it available anywhere? Uh, it is scanned. Uh, you know, I'm not sure if it's been made completely public. I'd have to go dig it up. But a lot of our backers for Shrine of the Avatar, our first backers, I, I promised them copies of it. So I, that's when I went and scanned it. So we, I have at least scanned it. Uh, and if they're not on the internet broadly yet, they will be soon. So um, other than your stories, how much of your D&D experiences went into Ultima? Not as much as you might think, uh, because, um, you know, when you're the, the, the rules and needs are a bit different. And let me kind of give you an example of why. Like, uh, I'm remembering a D&D campaign uh, that I used to run where, uh, you know, when, when you're making something up as a D&D campaign on paper, each and every room you make up can be as different as you want it to be and as unrelated to the previous room as you want it to be. And, and you're just describing it and you're playing it out in your mind. And so there's no coding necessary to support it. On the other hand, if you're doing a computer game, you'll notice it's, it's no surprise that most games are level grinds. And the reason why that's true is because it's pretty complicated to make anything work on a computer. So once you have a small monster that you can defeat with small weapons, well, then let's move on to a medium-sized monster you can, can you can beat with medium-sized weapons, and then a large monster you can defeat with large weapons. And uh, what you don't do very often in computer games is make each room, each scene, have something that needs to be custom-coded that you will only see one time. Uh, and it goes back to why movies are so expensive for only 90 minutes of entertainment, right? You know, in, in a movie, you're only going to do the big action sequence once, so you've you spend a ton of money filming that one action sequence. Well, in a computer game, you can invest money in action sequences and kind of use the same code for many action sequences, which is, and that one's good because you can use it for low levels or medium levels or high levels. But if you design something like, I remember a room where you're sneaking through the corridor and there's these hangman's nooses hanging from the ceiling, and as you come near them, they sort of attract towards your neck. And if you want to move through the room, you know, you have to move very carefully and almost belly crawl along the side or one of these nooses would touch you. So what do you do? Do you walk through the room standing up? Do you kind of push the noose out of the way or do you crawl on your belly to get through? Well, that's easy to describe and easy for you to tell me what you would do. But, you know, that would be custom code that if I only used it in that one circumstance would be wasted because it was only used once. When you started with the first Ultima again, did you have any idea that it was going to be like such an epic franchise with so many parts? Well, I never knew there was, you know, when I wrote A Calabath, I didn't know there was going to be, I didn't know it was going to be published. Mm -hmm. When I wrote Ultima, I had no idea there was going to be an industry on the backside, much less uh, Ultima 2. Then, you know, when I wrote Ultima 2, I was at least beginning to go, hey, this is kind of cool. It's sticking around for a little while. Uh, but it really wasn't until Ultima 4 that I finally said, okay, this is, tr this is, this is not going away. And I need to take this very seriously. And I need to be planning for the future, and and, and I want to play, pay much closer attention to the content. I sort of mastered the act of coding, and now I was kind of moving on to what am I trying to say in these games other than fight monsters and collect treasure and you win. Uh, and so, uh, you know, my, my happiness with the product goes up a, a lot after uh, starting with Ultima 4. Well, um, Ultima 2 was published by Sierra Online. Um, why did you decide to go with those guys? Well, the decision was frankly made for me, uh, or at least part of the decision was. The decision to leave California Pacific was, 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 uh, was, was not exactly my choice. Uh, California Pacific, as many of the early game companies, uh, went out of business due to their own folly. Um, you know, if you look at the, how much income I made compared, you know, for a high school kid, my story is not unique. You know, there were a lot of others of my, of that earliest era who had the same result. The, it was, you know, even though the total money in the total, in the whole industry combined was still pretty small, those few of us that were doing it were making a lot of money individually. And those companies that were publishing for us were making, you know, even, even more money individually for those, you know, handful of people that ran them. And the result of that is uh, that a lot of those companies were badly mismanaged. Uh, drugs and alcohol and flamboyant lifestyles and waste became very common. And a lot of the early companies, including California Pacific, went out of business. I sort of had to go off on my own because they quit paying me. Uh, and that's also why I got the, the title back, the copyrights back, is because they, they basically started shirking me. 
Uh, and then, you know, so when I popped up and said, hey, I'm, I need a new publisher, you know, all dozen publishers that existed at the time were, of course, saying, you know, you know pick us, pick us, pick us. Up until I give them my list of outrageous demands, starting with the, the first outrageous demand, which was I didn't want my game any longer in a Ziploc bag. I wanted my game in a box. And so Ultima 2 became the first game in the entire gaming industry in a box. But worse yet, I also wanted a cloth map and uh, other things that would make the ad would add reality to the experience that begins when you buy the box, not when you run the game. Was that a hard, and, was that a hard sell to them then, a cloth map? Oh, absolutely. In fact, you know, while, while when I put my head up and said, hey, I'm a free agent with the next Ultima, everybody said, pick us. As soon as I said, I want a cloth map and a box, everybody <laughs> dropped out except Sierra. Well, and well, that's why I ended up with Sierra Online is because they were the only ones to agree to my outrageous demands. Well, all of the games nowadays have figurines or cloth maps or, you know, collector's editions. So you're onto something. You know, in a, in a, you know, one of the things I like to, you know, uh, claim or reflect on, you know, in the gaming industry is how many of these firsts I've had the opportunity to be in. And, and I don't, you know, some people, the gamers, some know that Ultima's, the RPGs, the, the Lord British role-playing games were amongst, if not the first. But most people don't know things like they were the first games in a box and the first games with trinkets and the first games to be fictional and the invention of the word avatar and beginning the game with a personality profile as opposed to rolling dice. And, you know, a lot of other... Uh, or even having storylines that are about, um, you know, ethical parables or putting you in situations which are just not uh, level grinding and killing. There's a lot, and, and of course, MMORPGs broadly, and uh, you know, we uh, and the term shard for a different server set so when you when you overfill a virtual world, which really goes back to the fiction of Ultima One and the mundane gym of immortality. But every game company now uses it. In fact, a lot of data warehousing companies that duplicate data in multiple data centers call those data centers shards, which also again comes from Ultima One fiction. And uh, but no one's aware of it. So there's all these standards and of of design, uh, terminology to go back to Ultima. Even tile graphics. You know the whole concept of two byte wide, sixteen byte tall graphics that referred to as tiles. That goes back to Ultima as well. And Acalabeth had 3D graphics in it. So even 3D graphics for viewing your uh, role playing environment all go back to my early work. Well, uh, the word avatar as well is a perfect fit because it's a uh... Uh, original Hindu term meaning uh, descent, isn't it? Yeah, in fact, that's where I, in fact, how I, how I stumbled upon that term and adopted it for for games with, with Ultima Four. When I, since I knew I wanted to do a game that talked about virtue and ethics and that sort of thing, you know, I said, I said, well, what am I going to talk about? I'm going to talk about the Ten Commandments, and I went, no, that's not me. And I said, you know, am I going to talk about the Seven Deadly Sins? And I said, you know, that's great for a scary movie, but you know, isn't again what I'm trying to do here. And, uh, and so then I said, you know, I, I need to read up. And so uh, despite my lack of interest in uh, reading much in school, suddenly I became an avid reader. And uh, I bought a, a huge research library that I still have behind me here in my office to study, you know, not only all the major religions of Earth, but the philosophers throughout time. And I was in search of, you know, what do I want to be saying in my games? And then I sat down to basically, and since I didn't find any existing paradigms that I thought were appropriate for me to build a backbone from a gaming standpoint on top of, I decided to invent my own. And during that invention process uh, is when I came across the Hindu word avatar, which was used for uh, used traditionally to be the human manifestation of a deity on Earth. And so when, you know, when Vishnu, the elephant god, comes to Earth in his uh, human form, that is Vishnu's avatar. And I thought, this is exactly what I need, because I already knew that I didn't want you to feel like your character in the game was an alter ego. I didn't want you to, you know, to think, on Earth I'm a nice guy, but in Britannia I'm playing an evil wizard. Because I wanted you to be responsible for the decisions made by that character. And so I wanted to make sure it was you in that character not you're not playing you're not playing some escapist alternate form of yourself this is you and so i put in the personality profile as the way to determine your character and then i use the term avatar to use this because this is your personal manifestation in my world and i even gave you the fictional excuse of 
you find the moon gate behind your house that is the portal that takes you from Earth with the character creation you've done by talking to the gypsy who kind of peers into your soul through questioning and you manifest in your avatar in the in virtual worlds. And so this goes back to, uh, you know, 1983, 1984 uh, with Ultima 4. It's such a, a genius use of the word because it's so relevant to your kind of online playing. And uh, the fact that it's used so much nowadays is uh, great. Yeah, you know, it's funny. When, when we originally did it, we... As soon as we published Ultima 4, we realized this was going to be a, a big uh, word. And so we immediately trademarked it. And in fact, we stickered all the boxes that were for sale. The original version was for sale, didn't include this. And so the stuff you see online doesn't usually. But we put stickers on every box to, to use the word avatar as an adjective. Because if you use it only as a noun, you can't trademark it. And so we subtitled... Uh, all of the, uh, the the Ultima 4 and, and the Ultimas nearby it, and Avatar Adventure, so that Avatar was used as an adjective. And we trademarked it. And we, we owned and protected the trademark Avatar for some years until uh, Origin was purchased by Electronic Arts. And at that time, the upswell of other people using the word Avatar had become significant. And EA said... And at least to their, their lawyers had the opinion that there's really no way we're going to fight this. Um, it's uh, it's already gotten so big uh, and become so much part of the common lexicon uh, that we're just going to give it up. And so they actually abandoned the trademark. You didn't get any royalties from uh, James Cameron for the movie then, though? No, you know, what's really funny is uh, uh, James uh, and I have been in some business activities together, but I haven't had the heart to uh, to bring that up with him. Because uh, I didn't want to have him think that I was actually seriously wanting to try to get something out of him or claim any uh, credit for something for his incredible independent uh, you know production. Uh, but uh, uh, but someday if we get a chance to uh, uh, sit down and chat about it over a beer, I'll I'll, I'll hopefully get a chance to broach that. <laughs> Well, obviously, by Ultima 3, I mean, you mentioned it then, you um, you had your own company, the, the legendary Origin Systems, which you formed with your uh, your brother and your father. How did that come about then? Why did you form the company? Well, it, it, uh, it came about uh, because of a problem happening a second time. Uh, just as California Pacific quit paying me, uh, so did Sierra. Sierra had some tough financial times for similar early gaming industry reasons. Uh, and they basically just stopped paying, uh, not just me, but all their developers. And in both the cases, in, in the case of, C of California Pacific and in the case of Sierra Online, I went to my brother, my older brother, and uh, because he had been studying investments in software companies and had been working for a venture capital firm, uh, looking at them, and he had, uh, had designed some uh, memory chips that were inside of computers, so he sort of knew my industry reasonably well. And so when these deadbeats would quit paying me, I called my brother and said, hey, Robert, you know, can you help me try to collect you know, what my due from these guys who just basically stopped paying? And, uh, and two out of two times, he tried to help me. Two out of two times, he was unsuccessful. But after, after uh, our problems with Sierra, we, we, Robert sat down and said, look, Richard, you know, you know these, what these guys are doing as a publisher for you is not that complicated. And he said, uh, you know, why don't you and I, he, he was the one to suggest, why don't you and I go into business together and I can promise you one thing. And that is when money comes in the front door, I will give you your royalty first. Because the thing that these guys don't understand about running a business is if they pissed off one manufacturer of boxes, they could always go find another. If they piss off one retail store or chain, they can they still have a few others. But if they if they burn the bridge of the goose that gaze, lays the golden egg, the person who creates the product, then they have no company, as they you were finding out. And um, he said, "Look, you know, I, I at least know I won't make that particular business mistake. So, so why don't we do this together? And, and at least there'll be one risk off the table." And I said, "Well, wow, that's better than I've been treated ever before. Let's go into business together." So that's that's basically how it started, and we started it literally in my parents' garage. And uh, every member of the family became a staffer to, you know, fold boxes, copy discs, or ship stuff out the door. And uh, a lot of the neighborhood kids that were in, originally in my D and D group came to came on board to QA or participate in other ways. A few of them actually became authors of their own for Origin, Chuckles, and a few others. 
but um, uh, you know, off we went. Well, I know. Um, speaking of you know the games that you published after that, you, you stuck with the Apple II for quite a long time, didn't you? After pretty much a lot of other publishers had left it behind, was it sad to leave it behind? And was the move to the PC compatible a difficult move for you? It was a difficult move, um, and uh, and I did resist it. But by the way, that resistance of that move was one of the terrible mistakes I've made in my career. You know, I've made a handful of really bad decisions as a developer. Uh, and that was the first really bad decision. And the reason I say that is, you know, when the first IBM PC came out, because wasn't, it wasn't a PC, it was the IBM PC. There were no clones. There was no PC category. Um, but when the first IBM PC came out, and we got to look at it, you know, here was this big clunky machine. It, ran, it had a CPU that was a little bit faster than the Apple IIs, but the operating system was clunkier, if anything, uh, it had this chiclet style keyboard that I thought was terrible. And, uh, you know, and its ergonomic design, I thought was, you know, again, worse than the, you know, Apple II. And so as I looked at it, I went, you know, that's interesting. But, you know, Apple's coming out with their newer, better, faster. Also, you know, I, I not only do am I comfortable on Apple, but I frankly think Apple's going to win. And so uh, while a lot of other companies were spinning up their PC activity, I'm, you know, one of the primary people responsible for keeping Origin focused on the Apple II instead. But about halfway through uh, the development of, uh, I think this is, was Ultima 5, about halfway through the development, it became very clear that by the time that game was going to be finished, you know, six months or a year later, uh, that the, the, there, was, there may not be at all an Apple II market uh, or even a Macintosh market. The, because the PC and the myriad of clones that came out right on its heels were so rapidly replacing other uh, platforms and dominating other platforms uh, that it's obvious that it was very obvious that it made a big mistake. The problem then was is we had a, a entire office full of people who knew how to develop on the Apple II, including myself, and no one who knew how to code on the uh, 68xx processor line. It, you know, the assembly language it ran or any, you know, all of this memorization of every byte of memory on the Apple, you know, was now valueless. So suddenly, you know, while I was a top programmer, I became a valueless programmer. And that was true for, you know, the majority of my staffers. And so we had to go out and make a, do a huge hiring spree, buy, you know, hire, buy up some people that knew how to code on the IBM PC and a lot of us, including myself, that was the end of my programming. That was the la- the, the day we hired up a PC team was the last day in my whole life that I've programmed. And uh, uh, because at that point, the teams became so big and had to move so fast that there was really no point in me now going and becoming a junior programmer to then try to evolve into a mid-level programmer to eventually evolve into a high-level programmer when I could just go hire high-level programmers immediately. And that's really what I needed to do. So yeah, that was very painful. It, it nearly put us out of business. In fact, you know, Origin had already been happily growing for a, a good number of years. We uh, generated a fair bit of money. My brother and I, you know, had a fair chunk of money in the bank. And then all of a sudden, we we were going to delay every product, all of them, by about a year. And we did some projections about delaying our revenues by over a year and paying all of everybody's salaries for over a year. And that would not only wipe out all the money we had in the bank and the couple million dollars of bank loan that we had already knew we could get, but we would have to be signed for personally. But it would also wipe out all of our personal savings. Both Robert and myself would have to put all of our personal savings, plus this $2 million in debt, uh, all, all back into uh, the, uh, the company in order to get it survived towards publication time. Well, um, one thing that happened was you guys moved online with Ultima Online. And that must have been very risky, I guess, because no one else had done such a big... MMO that there, there wasn't one before. Yeah, that of course was some years later, but you're exactly right. That was uh, a big problem and a big opportunity. You know, when, when we we've been looking at some of these muds that you'd mentioned earlier and graphical muds, and you know, there were games on AOL and Kesmai and things of this nature, early multiplayer role playing games, and so we and we'd been wanting to do a multiplayer Ultima for a long time. We used to call it Multima. But we every time we did an analysis of it, we were going, you know, we really can't do a game of the quality we want because the time is not right. Uh, the, the total market is so small that it doesn't justify 
you know, even, you know, a fraction of what we already were putting into an Ultima. And so uh, we uh, delayed participating, or, you know, we, we delayed starting it until, uh, you know, the later 90s. And, and, but then what finally happened is we saw the internet coming online and we knew that that was the time, but we still couldn't convince EA, who was our parent company at that point. So it took us more than a year to get a, a modest green light uh, from EA to even start doing it. And, and of course, as you know, uh, once we finally demonstrated it to EA, they realized this was the most important thing happening in EA worldwide. We went from being the bastard stepchild product that nobody wanted to being the most important thing happening in EA worldwide. And then when it finally shipped, it became the fastest selling PC game in Origin and EA history. Well, um, famously in the beta, um, you got killed. <laughs> that is true. And, and I, by the way, I'm going to have to use this as my exit story. Our, 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 uh, I'm up against our, our child's piano lesson. Which, oh. No, you were correct. It was the, the literal, the last few minutes of the beta. And uh, Darkstar and I, or Blackthorn and I, were... Uh, going around city to city saying thank you very much all you beta testers for being here and helping us do this and someone casted a fire field up where I was standing and I had thought my character was immortal so didn't pay much attention to it when all of a sudden I fell over dead and and it turns out for the last many months I had just not remembered to turn on my my immortality flag during the last wipe of character data and no one had ever noticed because no one had ever tested it and no one ever, you know, attacked me because everybody assumed I was immortal. But then when we fell over dead, when I fell over dead and we couldn't figure out, we took some time to get me resurrected and it, no one had any idea who did it. So we had fun by killing everyone on the server, you know, by <laughs> unleashing demons and devils and all kinds of horrible things. Uh, but, uh, uh, but in the end, uh, uh, we did find out there was a gentleman named Reigns who will live forever in infamy. <laughs> You got your revenge, though. <laughs> yeah, eventually. Eventually. Well, Richard, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on this week. Absolutely. Uh, love to. And if you need me to back any time, I'd love to circle back. It's a, a lot of fun to talk about the uh, the golden era. Well, uh, your next project is the um, Shroud of the Avatar that everyone's looking forward to. Just quickly before you go, when, when can we expect episode one of that? Sure, absolutely. Shroud of the Avatar, it's uh, crowdfunded, crowdsourced, so people can come in and play and participate right now. But it will be launching here in uh, uh, just uh, just after the end of the year.